Like your brother, you can turn in the Word of God to First Thessalonians, the book of First Thessalonians, chapter one. We will. Well, last week we began our study in First Thessalonians, which we'll be going through. Each Lord's Day morning, as the Lord helps us. But we just give something of the background. We went, we went to uh, Acts chapter 17 last Lord's Day to get an idea of how this church was planted. It's always, I think sometimes we don't realize just how important the book of Acts is. If you can imagine just for a moment coming, well, going through the Gospels and then beginning to read the book of Romans, and so on, you might start asking the question, well, well how, how exactly did the, <laughs> did the church get planted in Rome? Or how, how does it come about that there are believers in Corinth? How is it that there is a church in Thessalonica? And you'd, you'd ask these questions, and you, for the most part, you'd be left without answers. And so the book of Acts really is a hinge that connects the Gospels to the epistles that are before us. Without the book of Acts, we would be as I say, very lost in trying to understand how these churches came to be. So we took time to look at how it tells us the story of this particular church last Lord's Day, and tremendous story it is, an encouraging one as well. But we come to the letter itself today, and we're going to read, well, we're going to take time to read the entirety of the first chapter, First Thessalonians chapter 1, reading from verse 1. Let us be encouraged by the word of the Lord. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing the work of faith and labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. But they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus." which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. Trust the Lord will bless this public reading of His Word and make us to be excited about His Word as we consider it here this morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's all still our hearts momentarily and look to the Lord for that Word that we need to hear. He is pleased to speak to us through His living Word and we want to know that voice coming to us this day.
Lord, if thou wilt speak, then all our desires will be satisfied. And we know today that God Himself has met with us. The testimony of every child of God is today that the Lord gave me a word. Then we will surely rejoice in Thy mercies. We will be glad. We will be thankful. We will know that we have been blessed. So we pray that every child of God will, will experience that. And that Thou wilt remove all distractions and deliver us from every hindrance. And that the word may come with power. We pray that that power will be in the Holy Ghost. We pray that therefore this preacher will be filled with that promised Spirit of God. Filled for that duty and responsibility given to us to make known the mysteries of the gospel. Give me help therefore, Lord, and grant that there may, may be a knitting together of hearer and preacher and a communication of truth that will reach to the innermost being. And if there be those that are not born of the Spirit, that today they may be awakened and brought from death to life. May it please thee to accomplish thy will and work in hearts and extend thy kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How we greet one another tells a lot about our relationship. What we say, how we embrace, our facial expressions, our body language all convey something about our relationship with one another. It may show that we barely know one another and we're meeting for the first time. It may show that we're just passing ourselves and being polite and looking for the moment to get away out of that particular conversation. It may show that we're best friends or it may show that we are in love. As we come this week to the commencement of this letter, we begin with a greeting. And my intention when I set out earlier in the week was to get through a number of these verses, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's part of the reason why I don't put the kind of verses that we're going to deal with in the bulletin, because I know me, <laughs> and I can have an idea to deal with a certain number of verses, and when it comes to the eve of preaching, I realize I'm never going to get through all of this, and I'm going to have to cut this down greatly. So that's the case this week. We're going to look simply at verse 1 that contains for us this greeting from the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. Now, as we look at this greeting in verse 1, it's a for formula that wasn't uncommon. You will know if you're familiar with the epistles that he uses similar language in basically most, if not all, aside if you exclude the book of Hebrews and uh, a few other different openings that he uses as he writes, but it, it generally takes this kind of just. And when you read in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, and the council there that come together in Jerusalem, when they send out letters to the churches, it kind of takes on basically the same formula. In Acts 15 verse 23, you will read, And they wrote letters by them after this manner, the apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. And so it takes basically there the same form that we have here. You have the sender, you have the recipients, and you have a greeting, a desire of a benediction upon them as they receive the message from them. And Paul essentially says the same thing over and over again in his epistles. Grace to be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, after introducing himself and whoever may be with him. 
And so we may read over it and consider it somewhat meaningless or unworthy of a sermon in and of itself. Or we could take the opinion that it's fundamental. And Paul feels the need to convey these truths to believers on every single occasion. Now, I think that's really how we should look at it. If the Spirit of God has inspired this, then it has importance that we're not to overlook. If God has seen fit to move His servant on almost every occasion to begin His letters in this fashion, then we're to stop and read it carefully every time. And I think the tendency is, well, we've read this before and or something like it many, many times, and we just kind of rush over it. And I don't want to do that today. I want us to learn here. One man notes this, quote, Often referred to as a common formula or social convention in Paul's letters, this phrase of greeting is anything but an empty cliche for Paul. In fact, it expresses in condensed form the essence of his theology, end quote. And if that's true, and I think there's certain truth within it, then we have to pause over it and learn the theology that's coming to us in his greeting, just to consider for at least one Lord's day something of what is being communicated to these that were in Thessalonica that Paul is addressing. So we're considering this morning the greeting to the Thessalonians, or Paul's greeting to the Thessalonians. And there's four things I want us to see uh, here. First of all, this greeting identifies the senders. It identifies the senders. Look at verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus. That's where he begins. Now, as Paul's writing to this church, he's writing to a church that are getting on well. We made mention of that last week, and that comes forth very clearly in chapter 3, verse 6, where if you flip over there again, we looked at that last week, but just to remind you, chapter 3, verse 6, now, when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you, so on and so forth, he, he talks about being comforted and so on. So they're doing well. The report that has come back from Timothy to Paul is encouraging. So in some sense, he's not really writing to, uh, in some way, address major problems. That's not the case. He's going to deal with a few things, but in large part, as we said last week, this is encouraging. He is encouraged by how God is working powerfully in this city and in and amongst this people. But as he begins, he makes mention of himself and those that are with him, Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus. And Paul, of course, was really the spiritual father of the work. It was he that went into this city and brought the gospel powerfully to them. And while he's the writer of this epistle, he doesn't exclude those that are with him. He includes also Silvanus and Timotheus. He brings the group together. I like that. I like it because Paul's not just trying to say, I care for you, but all these leaders here that are with me care for you. We all are concerned for you. Our heart extends to you all. That's why I like and value the fact that we are Presbyterian. And the fact whenever the church sends a message to someone... We often send it as from the elders. It's not just from the pastor. It's from the elders. It's from the session. Or in some cases, of course, from the entirety of the church. And it's not just one man. We're not in the business of drawing attention to ourselves and having this kind of one-man ministry philosophy. We believe that God works through the plurality of people. That it's the coming together of the entire church to function together and work together. 
And in this case, Paul is communicating the fact that we all, all three of us, are communicating this message to you and are encouraged with how you're getting on. And of course, it would be very encouraging to hear from Paul. And just as a side note, I think any of us that are in leadership, not just in the church, but those of you who are teachers or in any other place of leadership, to to remember that, that having a care and concern for those whom we are placed over is a very important. That we, we care about them, so we communicate to them in a way that conveys that love and appreciation for them. Paul is doing that. He's not just forgetting hearing the news that's coming from Thessalonica and just, well, that's good, and then carries on. He takes time out to communicate to them his care, his concern, his joy, and he, he invests, therefore, this effort to be a means of encouragement to them. And I think even there, there's application for all leaders. To invest time, invest effort in those that we are responsible for. It's not just Paul, of course, then it's mentioned. It's Sylvanus. Those here that are from Pennsylvania will perhaps know the meaning of his name uh, since it's really interpreted as, as woodland. And it's, it's right there in Pennsylvania in the term that William Penn, it's a Penn woodland, whatever I think is really the sense of that. Sylvanus is a place of wood. And this man here was known to the church because, as we learned last week, he was with the Apostle Paul. He's a gifted preacher of the New Testament. We are told that when he was in Antioch, before he went out on the missionary journey with the Apostle Paul in Acts 15, verse 32, that he exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And I was encouraged by that when I was just taking a quick look at the mentions of Silas or, or Silvanus in the New Testament, that he sought to strengthen and build up the saints and that he used many words to do so because I felt that I'm not so alone then since he used many words to encourage the saints then I'm glad to stand with him in that. Sometimes we need many words. And then there's Timothy as well, Timotheus. This man at the time perhaps was not just as prominent in the work, but he was there. And he is the one that Paul sends back to find out how they fare, to see how they're getting on. And he comes back with this encouraging report. And so, no doubt in the time that he spent there, evaluating the church, evaluating the people of God, trying to see how they're getting on, perhaps going there thinking, Lord, Is there even going to be any of your people there? Are they all going to be scattered in the midst of the persecution that they're experiencing? Will I find any of them going on with the Lord? But he gets there, and of course he finds them, and they're getting on tremendously well. And so no doubt his heart was knit to their heart, and they're glad again to hear from him along with the Apostle Paul and Silas. So that's just a brief overview over the senders of this letter, let us see secondly that this greeting identifies the saints, the saints that are receiving this letter because it's Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus onto the church of the Thessalonians. The church of the Thessalonians. The church. As it is in the Greek, Greek ekklesia, the compound word showing that that's called out. Those two words, the sense of out of, being called out of something. And it's not first used in the New Testament. It was used when prior to the writing of the New Testament, whenever the the Jews were were formulating the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they used this word ekklesia to to convey the, the congregation of Israel. And so you'll find it there. And so when the New Testament writers want to convey the same idea of a group of God's people, they use this word, this this word ekklesia. And it's a tremendous word that describes exactly what has gone on 
with those that are truly the Lord's. These Thessalonians had been called out. These dear people had been removed from where they were before. Now, they're still in the same city. They're still living in the same neighborhood. They're still known by the same people. But in a real way, they had been called out. There was a distinction in their life. We, we read what happened there. You look at verse 9 where they are, they've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They had been removed from one activity to another activity. There's been a, a transformation that has occurred. And I love the word. I love the way that this word shows that there's a change and transformation when we are truly born of the Spirit. That, that, that new birth, that life that God gives, removes us out of the old life and into a new life. We are called out in a divine and miraculous act. They had become followers of us and of the Lord, verse 6 says, having received the word in much affliction. So they, they joined themselves to the apostles and to the Lord. They had knit their hearts, removing themselves from previous affiliations to be joined to those who love the Lord and the Lord Himself. I don't want us to forget the fact that we are different in this world. As often has been said, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And our Lord Jesus made it perfectly plain in John chapter 15, verse 19, speaking to the eleven, He said there, If ye were of the world, the world would love His own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now, the apostles weren't going to experience this. Or they certainly weren't experiencing it to the degree at the time the Lord said these words in contrast with how they were going to experience it in the future. There was going to be a tremendous increase of this feeling of hatred. And the Lord is preparing them. If you were of the world, the world would love His own. If you belong to the world, the world would, would sense the affinity, the connection. Now, I'm speaking the words of the Lord Jesus and I want to underline them because, again, there's this danger where by nature we want to feel that we are part of something and even part of the world. Because we work in the world, don't we? You go out into your places of employment and you can't pick and choose those that you work with. And some of you, you work in very ungodly environments, in places where there are very few who truly know the Lord. In some cases, I might just say, going by my own experience, and sometimes it's easier to be one amongst a group of ungodly than it is to be one amongst those that profess to know the Lord. But their lives tell another story. But whatever the case, we are in certain positions in life, and we find ourselves faced with those that don't love the Lord, and there's this feeling at times to want to be loved or appreciated to be accepted, to be received. And, and, and that's, I think that's in us all, for the most part. We want to be received. We want to be welcomed. We want to be loved and appreciated. But Jesus wants to warn us, wants to prepare us, that if you really are received by the world, then it's showing that you belong to the world, that you're part of that world, part of its system and its desires and affections that are carnal and, and sinful. But because ye are not of the world, you don't belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. There's the Lord using that sense 
of being called out. You're called out of the world. Ecclesia. If you're really a part of the church, you're out of the world. And because you're out of the world, the world looks on and sees you as an alien. You're different. They know you don't belong. That your desires, your affections, the things that make you tick are different to them. They know that. They can see that. You live for God. You won't have to tell them that you're different. They will know you're different. They will see it in all of your ways, in all of your actions, in the way your heart has moved through your life. They will see it. They won't have to tell you. They won't have to ask you, are you a part of us? They will know you're not a part of us, that you're different, that you're distinct. The Lord has chosen you out of the world. Now, here's the thing. (laughs) How do I know I have been chosen by the Lord? How do I know? I will know it by whether or not I affiliate, affiliate with the world or affiliate with the people of God. If I, if, I am, if I want to know I've been chosen by Christ, I've been chosen by Christ, how will I know that? I will know it because there has been a sense that I've been taken out of the world, and the way it lives, and how it thinks, and I've been placed in another world, amongst the different people. This had happened in this city, in Thessalonica, where Paul addresses them, and he says, he he identifies who they are, these saints, these people of God, onto the church of the Thessalonians. It's not onto the city of the Thessalonians. It's onto the church. It's not to just the people of the Thessalonians. It's to the church. It's to the called out ones. This letter would mean nothing to the unbeliever. It wouldn't resonate at all. It wouldn't have any application. It wouldn't be received with any form of encouragement. But to the church, Paul writes, and perhaps there are those in that church now that he had never met. There are those that have been converted following his departure. There had been a growth in the church, but he still addresses them all. And he knows that there is a sense in which there is a unity of thought and life to all who are part of the church. That it's not just to those I met in Thessalonica, but it's to the church That whether you were part of the church when I passed through there, or whether you joined yourself to the church after I left, this message is still to you. It still applies, because you're part of this body, and therefore you think the same way, and you live the same way, and you have the same rule, the same desires, the same practice that the Lord has set before you, the same way He wants you to live. So, he's writing then to the church, he identifies these saints Note with me thirdly then, as we try to move along quickly through this verse, that this greeting identifies their situation as well. It identifies their situation, this church, because Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's where they are. They're in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. While it's not necessarily wrong to use the preposition before the Lord Jesus Christ, It's not needed, which is why if you have an authorized version, it's in italics. It's not required. So it's, which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying that that you're placed somewhere else. You're no longer in the world. The church is in somewhere else. You belong somewhere else. You've been placed somewhere else. Now what Paul is identifying here is the glorious union of believers with their God. A union with the triune God. Now the Spirit's not mentioned here. He doesn't mention and the Holy Spirit. 
But the Spirit is essential in this taking place. Ask yourself the question, how did it come to be that the Thessalonians are now in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? How did that come to pass? Well, Paul tells you how it came to pass in verse 5. Look at it. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. In the Holy Ghost. So in order for us to be in this experience of union with God, union with the Father, union with the Son, it is through the ministry of the Holy Ghost. And that becomes very clear when you turn again to the language of the Lord Jesus. Go back there just for a minute to John chapter 14. I want you to see that this union that we have with God is involving all the persons of the Godhead. John chapter 14. The Lord Jesus prepares His disciples. Judas is gone. Away to betray the Lord. The eleven remain. And they are discouraged because the Lord has said He's going to go away. And they don't like that. It's not encouraging for them. Again, when you think about it, the only thing the believer ever desires is for God to be with them. And Israel were always comforted by the words that the Lord communicated to them that He was with them and He was amongst them. And so if God's not with you, then that's, that's a terrible thing. And when the news comes that Jesus Christ is departing, it's like saying, God's leaving you. And that's why they receive it so heavily. That's why their hearts are so grieved. But He, he comforts them, doesn't He? As many of you are aware. And I don't want to read all the verses here, but we'll begin at verse 16 of John 14. John 14, verse 16. Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but ye know Him, for He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. And then down to verse 20. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. And then verse 22, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now, what Jesus says here is, I'm going away. But you're not going to be left alone. I will send another comforter. The idea is, I will send another who comforts exactly the way I comfort. Another of the same kind, of the same qualities. The Spirit of God. He makes up plain, even the Spirit of truth. Verse 17. So the Spirit's coming. Jesus is departing. The Father's not there in any physical presence. So Jesus is going away. The Father's not there. But Jesus says, the Spirit will come. But with the coming of the Spirit, Jesus says, verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I will come to you. In the coming of the Spirit, I am coming to you. But He reveals not only am I coming to you, but also the Father is coming to you as well. Look at verse 23 where we read at the end, My Father will love Him and we will come unto Him and make our abode with Him. So you have the Father coming, you have Christ coming, 
but they're not there in any real sense where they, he, they can actually be perceived or seen, but, but they can be understood to be with them through the ministry and power of the Spirit of God. And this is a tremendous comfort for the people of God when we think that God Himself is with us, that God is really with us in the Trinity of His persons. And so there's a union. There, there's a, that's what it's saying. That the Father comes and makes their abode with the believer. The, the Son is coming, making His abode with the believer. And it's through this ministry of the Spirit of God who comes and will never leave Him. And so you have the, the triune God coming and dwelling with, dwelling with the people of God. There's a real unity. There's a, a felt unity, I might say, because there's a manifestation of the Father, a manifestation of God in the heart of the believer. The believer knows God's with it. The Spirit makes that plain. Now, whenever Paul writes in his epistle and he says about this church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying that this is true of them. That what the Lord promised in John chapter 14 has been realized in the life of these Thessalonians. They had come into a real living, vital union with the triune God. They knew what it was for, for His life to be in them and their life to be enveloped in His. This experience is something that is unique to the believer but is true of every single believer. And so we must, we must not remove it. Are you here today with an awareness of the fellowship of the triune God in your life? I want you all to ask the question. Because as Paul speaks to the people of God, this is universally true. They are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's come by the ministry of the Spirit of God and they know it by the ministry of the Spirit of God. They're not in any doubt about whether or not they are the Lord's. They are in God. Now, today you're in church. You could say that term, I am in church. You're in a church building. But Paul's writing here to a people who were actually in the church, in the called out ones, amongst those that had been spiritually removed from the world into God. And that has to happen. It's not enough merely to be in church in the sense that I'm in the building. I must be in God. I must know my life is, is kind of enveloped in His that I know Him, and He knows me. If you have not that testimony, generally, generally, there's a very simple reason for that. You've never been born of the Spirit. Paul, as I say, is laying a foundation here. He's not giving advice generally to the world, that the world can say, well, that's a nice thought, Paul. And that will help me with some of the concerns in my life, some of the difficulties that I face. Paul's not thinking about the world. He's not considering them at all. He's considering the called out ones. Those called out ones are in union with God. They're in union. Think of that. Think of that. And this isn't in some pantheistic way where God is in everything. And we're all kind of God in that sense. That's not it. He's talking here about something that wasn't once true. It, didn't, it wasn't true before Paul went to this city. But something has happened. Something has occurred. These people are now called out of the world and into God. 
And as they live in the same city, doing perhaps the same employment, the same work, living with the same people, now they're not, they are not the way they once were. They are in God. They are in the Father. They are in the Son. And they know this through the ministry of the Spirit of God that has been sent by the prayer and desire of the Lord Jesus Christ from His ascension. In the fullness of His power, the Spirit is upon the people of God and with the people of God. The great need we have as the Lord's people is, is to know this experientially. That every day, every day I'm aware that God is with me. How are you going to face all the trials, all the difficulties? Unless you're aware that God is with you. Is it not true that whenever you're crushed by what's going on in your life, that there's an element in which part of that, at least sometimes, is because you're not conscious of God with you. And sometimes the Lord withdraws. He does that so that we run after Him. Maybe that's where you are today. And so as we make application, you say, I don't know, I, I don't, I'm not experiencing this union with God. I'm not experiencing it. It's not that you're not saved, but that the Lord has, has kind of hid His face. We thought about this on Wednesday. David had this experience. The Lord withdraws Himself. And then we run after Him. We desire to have what we, we know we've had before. And so we run, and our affections, therefore, are, are stimulated. Whatever the case, as we leave here this morning, I want us to, to, to be asking seriously the question, do I know this union with God? John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, and I think this is important for us to understand because the world will talk about having a relationship with God or knowing God. Manifold religions will talk in terms like that. But when Jesus Christ came, He made it perfectly clear. If your understanding of God and knowing God excludes me or minimizes my person, you don't know God. I'm not going to go to John's Gospel and show that to you. But it's made very clear there. Especially in the central part of that Gospel. So John writes, knowing this, in 1 John 5 verse 12, He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son hath not life. Now you're all here living and breathing. Your heart's driving blood through your veins, bringing oxygen to all of your organs. You're living. But John says, if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. This life is more than merely drifting through the world. This life is something that, that, that is spiritual and is eternal. It's life that's going to carry us out of this existence into the life to come. We don't enter into eternal life when we die, we're in eternal life. We're experiencing eternal life now. Not to the same degree. Not manifest in the same fashion as it will when we are glorified. But eternal life has already 
being experienced by the believer. Life is in us. And how could it not be if we are in union with God? This union with God, therefore, is not some kind of... It's not something in the ether. It's not... It's not just a concept. It's experiential. It's what's going to carry you into heaven. This fact you're in vital union with God. And because of that union, you really have life. You have this life that is sourced in God that becomes experienced by God's people because they've been removed from the world and placed into the triune God. And Jesus says this, this is something that his people know now. And Paul, when he writes, he's really reflecting that that is what has happened amongst those to whom he writes that when he went into that city and he preached the gospel, something happened. He's writing to the called out ones of the Thessalonians, which are now in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't always in Christ, but they now are. So are you in Christ? Are you really in Christ? Does your life make it perfectly plain that you have another life? You have another life. It's changed things for you. Your affections aren't what they once were. They've changed. I mean, every genuine Christian has known this to some degree. It may be manifest in different ways, but we have known this to some degree. We have known what it's like in some area of our lives to be weaned from the world. Something that we always did, especially if we were saved later on in life, and we lived that way, we pursued that path, and we loved it. We were like pigs, pigs wallowing in the mire. We, we loved it. We had no idea that there was anything wrong with it. And then, when we had life, all of a sudden that life didn't seem compatible with that activity, or that way of thinking, and that philosophy, or whatever it was. And so we, we begin a, a change, a transformation begins to work in our lives where the real life of God becomes more and more real and manifest as it takes us in a different trajectory. As I say, it's different. It's different for everyone because our likes and dislikes are different, even in our carnal ways. But there has, there has to be some sense where the life of God as it is imparted and known, moves us in another direction. If it doesn't, you have to ask yourself, well, well why, haven't, <laughs> why hasn't this happened? If the life of God is in me, why hasn't it moved me in a different direction? We're going to see next week, God willing, that Paul is very certain about these believers. Verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, Knowing your election of God. How did he know that? By what happened when they were placed in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happened? Well, we'll see it in verse 3. We're not going to look at it today. There was a transformation in their lives. A complete change. So their situation is now completely different. Whenever Paul wrote to those at Ephesus, he says in chapter 2, verse 12 there, that at that time, that is, when they were before they came to know Christ, at that time, ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, 
having no hope, and without God in the world. Without Christ, without God. Synonymous in a very real sense that, that there is this, you're, you're without the divine. These Thessalonians, the same could be said of them. At, at one point, before I came into the city, you were without God, you were without Christ. Now you're with God and with Christ. And not just with, with in the sense of being side by side. You're with in union. In union. It's the same idea you have at the very beginning of John's Gospel. When he, when he, when he writes there about the, 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 the union that is reflected in the Trinity between the Son and the Father. He says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. There, there's, there's, it's not just with in the sense of being beside, but there's union here. And with us now being with God, we were once without God, without Christ, now we're with God, we're with Christ. There's union involved in that. There, there's life therefore imparted. You can't be in God and it not impart something to you. There has to be a transformation. There has to be a change. That brings us forth and finally then, See that this greeting identifies a salutation. We've seen the senders, the saints, their address, their situation. Now see this salutation that is brought to them. These well-known words, Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A number of things to note. This greeting, this salutation, Shows the favor of the gospel, doesn't it? Grace be unto you. Grace be unto you. Now the term grace is used in many ways. Even the world sometimes talks about grace. Showing someone grace. But in relation to salvation, the common definition of it will suffice for us this morning. The idea of it being unmerited favor. Unmerited favor from God to man. That God shows favor. It's not merited. It's not earned. It's shown to men. Now, it's not drawn out by external force. It's not us saying and earning grace from God. Paul argues elsewhere that if that was the case, then it wouldn't be grace. And sometimes people think grace is something that's a New Testament co- concept. It's experienced for believers now, but it wasn't in the past. But, but that's not the case at all. When you read the early chapters of Genesis, and maybe when you're fo- you've been following a new reading pattern, and perhaps some of it has been in the early chapters of Genesis, maybe, maybe not. But did you notice if that is the case when you were reading the early chapters of Genesis? That God says, The day you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, thou shalt surely die. And then they participate in it, in rebellion, and we're, we're, we're driven to see... Adam and Eve, they run. God comes in the cool of the day. You haven't come. Adam, Adam, where art thou? Right there. Right there. That, that, that the Lord comes and asks, where are you? Instead of, that's it. It's over. Where are you? Where are you? What is that? But Grace. Lord comes and, 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 and you see what the Lord has to say. Most of the condemnations on Satan. And the Lord is, is, is saying, here's what he's going to do. In the midst of what you've done and your rebellion, here's what I'm going to do. It's all grace. Even before, he, even before he actually says 
what he plans to do. His movement toward man is grace. His movement to reach out to the sinner who's running away from God is grace. It is all grace. And from beginning to end in the Scripture, it's grace. It's God moving in unmerited favor toward men. And this is how Paul begins when he communicates a salutation to these dear believers. Grace be unto you. Grace be unto you. That you experience this unmerited favor. That from the beginning of the world, from man's fall, has been gracious. God moving in grace toward men. God is gracious. Paul would write to the Corinthians these remarkable words in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know it, Paul? Tell me how we know it. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. That's grace. Paul would say in Galatians 1.15, When it pleased God who separated, separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. By grace are ye saved, Ephesians 2.8. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, Titus 2.11. Grace. And Paul is saying as he brings a salutation, grace. And you know the wonderful thing? That really as Paul says, grace be unto you, Paul's not kind of conveying a wish. That's not what he's doing. He's not conveying a wish. He's expressing the very greeting of God to his people. Paul's just reflecting what is true for the child of God from their God. Grace be unto you. If Paul doesn't say this, grace is still going to be unto his people. Paul's just identifying it. Paul's expressing that which is the divine will toward every child of God. Grace be unto you. Paul, you see, is is at one with the heart of God, with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying grace be unto you. This is the reflection of the heart of your Savior. Grace be unto you. The very fact that you're saved, the very fact that you have been pulled out of nature's darkness, you're now part of the called out ones in God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is clearly true that grace is unto you. And He is pronouncing it upon them, yes, desiring it for them for sure, but really, in in some sense, just reflecting the favor of God that they had already participated in in grace not just grace but peace peace from god our father peace this is the fruit of the gospel it's not just the favor but the fruit of it and the order is critical peace comes after grace because it is the product of grace because of grace there is peace those who have not grace rather have no peace they don't they may have a certain form of peace. And it, they may say, I, I live quite at peace. And there may be reasons for that. Well, my investments are secure. They are sound. And I've got my house that's bought and paid for. And I have a sense of peace about that. 
I go to sleep at night and I don't have to worry about some of those things. There's peace. I feel that my job is secure. I have my family around me. There's this peace. There's peace in a certain sense materially that men may know. But, but this exceeds that peace. This is, this is peace that gets to the very core of man's being. This is a peace that overrules even when all those things that man finds a sense of peace in don't exist. <laughs> this is a peace that is so rooted in what God imparts to His people that even when there's no oxen and there's no corn and there's no nothing at all materially and there's no one around us and we have none of this what this world has to offer when we have none of that that we're exposed even then even then we have peace I always think of the words of Tozer and I'm paraphrasing him because it's always a challenge I, I think he was right that what the Lord desires for His people is to, is to bring them to a place where if they had nothing but Him, they would be content. Nothing but Him. And so, He would go on and he talked about the world's goods and the things that we have and, and I'm making sure that we hold them out here and not in here. <laughs> that when the Lord and His sovereign purposes takes them from us, we're not clinging on to them as if our life depends upon us keeping them. But if the Lord sees fit to remove them from us, we're glad to let them go and let God be glorified. Now for those of you who have had precious things taken from you, you know it's not as easy as that. But as Tozer said, that's what the Lord is seeking to work out in His people. It's not perfectly manifest in any one of us. We don't begin the Christian life and immediately we're, we're prepared to let everything go. That's, we may say that word, that, that, that. We, may, we might talk in terms like, I'm, I'm prepared to give up anything. And then the Lord, He may see fit to put His finger on something that we thought, well, well, surely you would never take that from me. And He does. And we learn. So what the peace that believer has is not dependent on those things or those relationships. It's dependent upon the relationship we have with the Lord. And so if we have Him and we are in union with Him, grace be unto you and peace. Peace will be our portion. This peace, of course, is relational. It's peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The enmity is gone. The problem between God and man has been dealt with. There's now peace with God. Now, keep that in mind, believer. I don't want to dwell too long on this because time is swiftly running away from me. But keep in mind that you have peace with God and you're justified by faith, not by your works. And so whenever you're overrun by a sense that I have no acceptance with God, that's a lie. That's a lie. It's not true. If you're truly in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, you have peace. You think God has you in union with Himself and there hasn't been, there, there hasn't been the establishment of a grounds for peace? You think He's bringing those who are enmity with Him, those who are enemies of Him, and bringing them into union and maintaining some sense of fellowship there even though there's a problem? No. 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 All, all that was needed for, for God to receive you 
and to be at peace with you has been accomplished by Christ. The foundation of this peace is rooted in His person and His work and what He has accomplished on our behalf. Our peace with God has been settled. It has been accomplished. It has been purchased. It is done, beloved. Don't let the devil tell you otherwise. Don't think you can't pray because of some matters of your past, some history that haunts you, some sins that you can't seem to get away from your mind when you seek to pray. Those things are under the blood. There is peace with God. There's a relational peace that is absolutely 100% settled in the mind of God. So this peace, this peace is yours. Jesus says, my peace I give unto you. I've given it. It's not only relational, it's also experiential. It's relational peace with God, experiential peace in life. Is that not what Paul says when he writes to the Philippians? Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, be careful. We would use the word often these days, anxious. Be anxious, be careful for nothing. Now, just, just, just let there be a little pause there. Let that sink in. Allow me to just rub, just for a moment, that text into your mind and heart. Be anxious for nothing. For nothing. You see what Paul is saying there? Be anxious for nothing. Are you getting it? Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. Paul, you don't know life in the 21st century. Oh, really? (laughs) He may not have lived in the 21st century, but I'm quite sure that life in the 1st century wasn't exactly a bed of roses. Paul knew the difficulties of life. He knew them well. He's not stoic. It's not like he doesn't understand. This man knows. He knows the hardships. He knows sacrifice. And he knows our frame. He says, be careful for nothing. But Paul, you don't understand. The Lord Jesus understands, but you don't. So you're saying the word's not inspired? (laughs) Are you implying that Paul's saying something that the Lord himself is not conveying to us? That he is not sharing with our hearts? No, no. Look, I don't want to spend any longer on this, but just look at it. Let it sink in. If it's the only thing you take away because it really applies to where you are today, let it settle into your heart. Be careful for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. So what are you to do? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The things that you don't have or the things you're concerned about, make them prayer requests with gratitude and thanksgiving. Verse 7, And the peace of God. The complete opposite of anxiety. That's what I'm saying here. It's not just relational peace with God. It's experiential peace in life. The peace of God, not peace with God. The peace of God. Do you think God worries? you think God's in heaven concerned, worried about what's going on with the economy, what's going on in China, what's going on in the world, in America? Do you think God's worried? 
No, of course he's not. Unless you're really wacky in your theology. He's not at all worried, not at all concerned. And so this peace of God, peace that is, that is reflected in God himself, is imparted to those who instead of being anxious for everything, bring them in prayer with gratitude to him, making them known, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God won't always make you know what's going on in life. He'll just give you the peace he has and impart it to you so that you're not worried about it. Experiential peace. It's your lot, child of God. And when Paul brings his greeting, brings his salutation to them, it's grace unto you and peace. And again, it's not from him. Who's it from? This brings us to see the fount. The fount of this as well. Not just the fact there's this favor, but there's also, and the fruit, but there's also the fount. It's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father appoints this for you. That's what I said at the outset, is it not? That Paul's not just making a greeting that says, here's my desire for you. But Paul's reflecting what the Lord is saying to his people. And that comes out when he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not from me. It's not from me. I'm not just saying niceties to you as I open up my letter. I'm, I'm gonna, he's going to reveal certain things here in his letter. But he begins at the outset that, that God is communicating that, that Paul is communicating with them because God already communicates with them. That God has message for them. And the message is contained in these fundamental truths. The basis of Paul's theology. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now, my time is gone. So let us bring this to a close. Do we know this? Do we know this? Do we are we aware, are we very conscious that we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have received this by grace, not by our own works or effort? If I asked you to testify, you wouldn't get up here and say, well, preacher, I am in God, I, I am part of the church because, well, I read my Bible every day. Or I pray every day or whatever. No, no, if that's your testimony... If that is your testimony of grace, you've got it all wrong. Because you're beginning with yourself. Grace is something that God has done and God imparts freely. And so if you're in God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's because you have received something. Not because you've done something, but because you've received something. And what you've received can be summed up in this term grace. It is the work of God that He has graciously imparted the life that you need to bring you from darkness into light and the power of Satan unto God. So are you in relationship with God? Are you? Are you really in relationship with God today? Do you know what it's like to have a relationship with the Lord? I fear, I fear that far too many drift through life with various experiences of the past, but they're not up to date. And we're going to see this next week. We're going to see how the Thessalonians manifest the reality of what Paul says in the greeting. And it is not through carrying on as you were. It is through a massive transformation of their lives so that Paul is able to say, your election of God. I know you've been elect because of what's manifest through your life.
So, the Lord greets you today, beloved. He does. Every day He greets you this way. It's on to the church, the called out ones. And He greets you, grace unto you and peace. There is therefore nothing that He is putting you through without showering His grace and peace upon you. Nothing. If you're going through something today and you feel as if you're on your own, you're not. You may not feel His grace. You may not feel His peace, but it's, it's real nonetheless, unless God's a liar. Peace is yours because of grace. And if you're not saved, if you're not a child of God, I want you to know that there is absolutely no reluctance in the Lord for Him to welcome you this way. None. There's no reluctance. You say, I'm not sure where I am, preacher. Well, you come to Him. I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. How, if I'm not sure where I am before God, what do I do? Do, do, I, just try to, do I try to mine out a past event and analyze it and discover whether or not that was a genuine work? Is that what I'm to do? Because preacher, that happened when I was six or whenever I was 16 or whatever. No, I would never ask you to do that and neither would the Lord. You don't analyze past experience. You don't look back and try to put it under a microscope having all those years passed and look at it and say, well, did this really happen? Was I really sincere? Did I repent sufficiently? Did I have enough faith? What happened between now and then? Look, I can't answer any of that. And neither can you, really. But if anyone wants to be saved, to be placed in Christ through a work of divine grace, they ask for it. And if anyone wants to have it manifest more fully in their life because they've been drifting for years, calling themselves Christians but not looking for the experience of union with God and fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, then you ask for it. You ask for it. You, you're careful for nothing. Not anxious with whether or not this really happened in the past. Careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer, by seeking the face of God today, you can come to know where you are before the Lord. You do what we all do. We repent of sin every day. We ask Christ to have mercy upon us. We endeavor to put away all things that offend and to live according as He has said in His Word. And if we do that, and you come back next week and you see that some of the things we looked at that were true of those at Thessalonica, if they are some way manifest in you, then you can be encouraged that you are the Lord's. Let us bow together in prayer. Let's all seek the Lord. If you need any help from me this morning, I'd be only too glad to assist you and help you whatever way I can. But the Lord is able to hear your cry wherever you are today. And I want you to know that He loves sinners. He does. The whole reason that Paul was moved to go into this city is because God loves sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. And He wants you to know that there's no reluctance in Him at all for you to experience His grace and His peace. If you want it today, you can have it. 
Lord, we pray that if there be any here today that are uncertain about where they stand before Thee, we ask that it might please Thee to give them the help they need to just call. Remove that temptation to delay, the temptation to procrastinate. We pray this very hour there may be those who will come into a full assurance of what it is to be in union with the triune God. We are glad for the life that this gives and brings. We are thankful that we are yet imperfect. We're glad that there has been a transformation in many lives here today. As the hymn writer put it, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. And we give thee all the praise and glory for thy divine grace, for favor that has been lavished upon us, unmerited. O God, today, help us to renew our vows, help us to apply ourselves to live for thee, help us, above all things, to be joyful, to be so full of joy, because we have received grace and peace from thy hand. Hear us this day, sanctify our fellowship, sanctify our afternoon, and bring us back here this evening to hear thy word, to worship with thy people, and to enjoy thy presence. We pray in Jesus' name.